When a business or organization wants to get a handle on the identity and character of an applicant that they've never met, common practice is to contact a, a reference, someone who knows the applicant personally and can therefore accurately verify who they are, what they're like, what they've done, and why we should accept them. And I have a very vivid memory of doing that with Pastor Joe when we were considering him for ministry and especially contacting his home pastor as a reference. A number of times he said that Joe was a real humdinger, which is a term I don't think I've ever heard before. I assumed it was a good thing because the rest of his reference was just this glowing endorsement of Joe that he was a godly young man with a godly character. Uh, He finished the conversation saying we'd be crazy not to hire him. Well, that personal testimony, along with a few others that were also very glowing, not quite so colorful, that gave the search committee the confidence to move forward in the hiring process, to meet Joe personally, get to know him for ourselves, and consider accepting him. Well, as we'll now see, there's a connection between that process and what we see in our text. Last week, as we began our new sermon series through the Gospel of John, we were first introduced to Jesus, and what we were told in the first 18 verses, the prologue, was astounding, that Jesus is none other than God in the flesh, who became one of us so that we could become children of God by his grace. And I think verse 14 really sums it up in chapter 1, where it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, And we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, some of you might be thinking, okay, but how do I know that's true? I mean, I wasn't there 2,000 years ago. I didn't see Jesus. I didn't hear Jesus. I've never met him personally so that I can verify what John is saying. And so I'm going to need some pretty hard evidence to believe that Jesus is God. Well, as I pointed out last week, that is actually the stated purpose of this book. In chapter 20, verse 30 to 31, the Apostle John explicitly states that he wrote this gospel account to give irrefutable signs and evidence that Jesus Christ is, in fact, the Son of God. And we begin to see this right away in this morning's text, when John records the testimony of those who knew Jesus personally and could therefore verify who he is. They were like references for the Redeemer. And their witness was consistent. Those who knew Jesus testify that he is none other than God in the flesh. Now, these references were already introduced earlier in the prologue. They were among those mentioned in verse 12, all who did receive him. And the first was even mentioned by name in verse 6, which we'll start with this morning. And it is the testimony of John, who is probably most commonly known as John the Baptist. Now, he's probably one of the most eccentric characters in the whole Bible. He was a a wild yet godly man who's always captured my attention and imagination, especially when I was a boy. You know, miraculously born to elderly parents, 
just before his cousin Jesus. We read in Matthew and Luke that, that John went on to live his adult life in the mountainous wilderness of Judea. He was dressing like a a mountain man prophet clad in camel hair with a, a crude leather belt. And he was eating strange but simple foods like locusts and wild honey. And, and all this demonstrated his utter lack of concern for the comforts of this world and his, his sole zealous focus on his God-given mission. And despite these excuse me, eccentricities, or, or maybe because of them, John quickly grew in popularity, drawing great crowds to the Jordan River. That was kind of his base of ministry. And most of the people believed that he was a prophet of God, the first prophet in 400 years. And some even wondered whether he might be the Christ, the promised Savior King. And that takes us to our text. When we see in verse 19, when the Jews, that is the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, whose job was to examine anyone thought to be a prophet or especially anyone thought to be the Christ, uh, they sent a delegation of priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now for John, this was a very serious question. He no doubt was aware of all the rumors. And so he took this occasion to clear the air once and for all about who he was and what he was up to. In the most unambiguous way, verse 20, it says he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Or literally, I am not the anointed one whom the Old Testament had prophesied would one day reign on David's throne and his kingdom forever, like we see, for example, in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. But it wasn't just the Christ, the Savior King, who the people of Israel were waiting for. No, they also were waiting for the promise of the coming Elijah before the day of the Lord from Malachi 4, 5. And they also were waiting for the promise of the prophet who Moses said would one day come in Deuteronomy 18, and who the Jews believed was either a, another forerunner for Christ, like Elijah, or maybe the Christ himself. Well, again, John denied that he was either of these in verse 21 to 22. So John, who are you then? That's what this delegation's asking. What do you say about yourself? And you know how he responded? He responded with scripture. He quoted from Isaiah 40, verse 3, the prophecy from God that he was now fulfilling. So verse 23, he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, in the time of the prophet Isaiah, there were very few roads in the ancient Near East. So when kings would travel, roads were actually made for him in preparation for his coming. Well, in the same way, John's mission was to prepare Israel for Christ's coming in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. And to do that by, by calling them to make straight the way of the Lord. In other words, preparing themselves for Christ the King's coming. And the way they were to do that was through baptism. 
a ceremony that had usually been reserved for Gentile converts. It symbolized their repentance and their reception into the people of God. They, they were becoming Jews. But John's baptism was very different. For the first time ever, he was calling Jews, Israel, God's people, to be baptized, demonstrating their confession of sin and their commitment to the coming Messiah, Savior, King. Now, most of the Jews had thought they already were prepared because they were Jews. They were children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were God's people with God's law. But John's baptism said otherwise. It said, no, no, you need repentance to be ready too. And in essence, it put them on the same level as the Gentiles. Both needed confession, both needed cleansing from sin, which was an outrageous assertion to many. Which is why the religious leaders uh, go on to ask, as we read in verse 25, they asked him, then why are you baptizing If you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet. In other words, by what authority are you doing this? Something that's never been done to Jews before. Verse 26, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. He's talking about Jesus, who's already on the scene, but hadn't been recognized yet, hadn't started his ministry. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal." I am not worthy to untie. Now, it's very telling that John said he wasn't worthy to untie even the sandal of Jesus. What did he mean by that? Well, that was a job for the lowest slave. John's saying, compared to Jesus, this one who's coming, who you don't know, I'm even lower than that. I'm, I'm even lower than a slave. That's interesting because John was an amazing man with an amazing mission. The greatest born among women, uh, Jesus said in Matthew eleven eleven, And yet all he wanted to do was to get his eyes off of himself and onto Jesus. That was his purpose. He, he wanted to serve in that way. You know, if you've ever been to a big concert, there most likely was an opening act whose job was not to draw attention to itself, but rather to get the crowd ready for the main event. You might say John was the opening act for Jesus, not drawing attention to himself, but rather getting the crowds ready for the real star of the show, who is far, far, far greater than he. And why, why did he do this? Who who is Jesus? What, What makes Jesus so great and special? Is he the promised Christ? Well, the apostle moves on now in the text and And uh, starting in verse 29, he takes us to another day. There's actually four days in this section of scripture total. And here on this second day in verse 29, he records John's testimony about Jesus. And yes, the illusion is that he is the Christ, but he's much more. Verse 29, the next day he, John, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's been said that in this one potent statement is summed up the main message of the whole Bible. Not long after the creation of mankind, sin entered the world and with sin, death. 
But God immediately revealed that there was this plan of salvation from sin and death that had already been in the works that would involve someone dying in the place of the world so that sinful mankind could live. And one of the main ways he revealed this was through the image of a sacrificial lamb, whether it was the lamb God provided Abraham in the place of Isaac, in Genesis 22, to die for Isaac, or the Passover lamb, who, remember, was killed and its blood applied to the doors so that Israel could be saved from the angel of death in Exodus 12, or the, the lamb led to the slaughter to bear the iniquity of us all in Isaiah 53, 6-7, which is the prophecy of the coming suffering servant, the Christ. All that biblical imagery was burnt into the consciousness of Israel for generations. And now John was testifying, this Jesus here, it's him. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb whom we've been waiting for. The promised one who would, who would once and for all die in our place for the sins of the world. Which we'll see is where the whole gospel of John is heading. Right From this point on, it's, it's all heading towards his coming death for us. Just like his revelation, which he would write later, that you remember begins with the lamb who is slain in, in uh, Revelation 5 and then ends with the marriage supper of the lamb, Revelation 19. It's the same truth that Peter's referring to in 1 Peter 1, 18 to 19. For you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defects. The perfect sacrifice once and for all for the sins of the world. Many years ago in Germany, a man was working very high up on the steeple of a church when he lost his footing and he fell perilously down to the ground. But it just so happened that beneath him, there was a lamb who was grazing in the churchyard. It broke his fall and saved the man's life. A lamb died so that this man could live. Just a wonderful picture, the same picture that John is painting here, John the Baptist of how Jesus died so that we could live. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, why, why was John able to say this? How did he know that this was true? And why should we believe him? That's a fair question, which is answered in all four Gospels, including here in verse 30 to 34. We read, John goes on to say, to those asking him, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the son of God. So John just upped the ante by testifying that 
Jesus, he's not only the Lamb of God, he's the very Son of God. Who notice he said in verse 30, was before me, even though John was actually born before Jesus on earth, which is another hint of Jesus' divinity, that he's actually the eternal God. And all this was clearly confirmed in a remarkable way. When the Spirit descended on Jesus at his baptism, which is more fully uh, spelt out for us recorded in Matthew and Luke. And so friends, if anyone has the, the right and authority to testify of such great things about Jesus, that he's none other than the Lamb of God and Son of God, it was John. It was John the Baptist. The Old Testament had hundreds of years earlier prophesied of his coming ministry, and he's now fulfilling that preparing the way for Christ, for the Savior King, and then the Holy Spirit himself verified that Jesus is the Christ when he descended on him like a dove. And for these reasons and more, we can have absolute confidence in the testimony of John. We can know from this reference of the Redeemer that Jesus is the Redeemer of the world, the Lamb of God, and the very Son of God. But there's more references to come. That's sort of the main one, but there's a few more. And the second we see in verse 35 to 42, it's the testimony of Andrew. So on the third day recorded in our text, we find John again, but this time he's with two of his disciples, his followers, his learners. And as they're just standing around, we read in verse 35 that Jesus walked by. And what did John do? Well, again, he testified Behold the Lamb of God, which obviously struck a chord because as soon as his disciples heard him say this, off they went and followed Jesus, signifying that they had now, if you like, switched schools from John's school to Jesus, from John as their rabbi to Jesus, from John as their master to Jesus. They were now Jesus' disciples instead of John's, which again would have absolutely thrilled John because as we saw last week, that was his greatest desire to point people, not to himself, but to Jesus so that they would follow him, which of course should be our greatest desire too. I, like John, am called to play the opening, the role of the opening act for the main event, for the real star of the show, Jesus. So that people come to, through me and through my ministry, through what I say and do, come to follow Jesus, not follow Jay. And you're called to do the same. We all are, if we are followers of Jesus. Well, it seems that one of his former disciples, John's former disciples, had also caught this very Christ-centered spirit Because after spending some quality time with Jesus where he was staying, we read in verse 38 to 39 that Andrew, brother of the famous Simon Peter, immediately found his brother and testified, we have found the Messiah. We found the Christ, the promised Savior King. And then what did he do? He he brought Peter to Jesus so that he could could come and see for himself. Don't just take my word for it. Come and see. Which is interestingly what we see Andrew doing every time we meet him 
in John's gospel. There's three times, and every time he's bringing someone to Jesus. Whether it's here with Peter, or in chapter 6, verse 8 to 9, with the boy who had the five loaves and two fishes, or in chapter 12, 20 to 21, 21 with the curious Greeks. Andrew was always bringing people to Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, the prophet, priest, and king who brings good news. Now, should we not also be known for that very thing? Bringing people to Jesus? We found the Messiah. We've come to know Jesus, the light of the world, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Son of God. You've got to meet him. Here, come and see. Come and see. Let, let me show you Jesus. Let me bring you to Jesus. That's what Andrew was all about. That was the testimony of Andrew, and it should be ours as well. But there's more. Thirdly, we see in verse 43 to 46, the testimony of another man, Philip. Now, this is the fourth and last day recorded in our text. When Jesus found Philip, it says, in Galilee. That's the region around the Sea of Galilee, where much of Jesus' ministry on earth took place. And he invited him in verse 43 to follow me, which Philip did without any hesitation, probably because he'd already heard about Jesus from Andrew and Peter, who we see in verse 44 were from his hometown. And you know, really, that's where, that's a good reminder of where our witness should begin too. Our witness should begin at home, in our hometown, and then go out from there. Just like it was for the early church, you remember, and Jesus commissioned to them that they be his witnesses, first in Jerusalem, then to Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. We just had our missions conference a few weeks ago, and we're reminded that we are to be part of this great global mission, but hey, it starts at home. It has to start with us bearing witness wherever God has planted us. Now, just like John and Andrew before, Philip, he just, he couldn't keep Jesus to himself. He immediately found his buddy, Nathaniel, and he said, you've got to meet this guy. You've got to meet this Jesus. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. So here's the fourth testimony about Jesus. He's the one who the entire Old Testament was ultimately pointing to, right? From Moses to the prophets, from Genesis to Malachi, all the promises and all the prophecies, all the shadows and, and all of the, the types, all of the sacrifices and all of the ceremonies. In a real sense, it's all now being fulfilled in this one person in this Jesus who himself would say later to the religious leaders in in John 5 39 that all of the scriptures testify of me but Nathaniel wasn't buying it how could the promised one come from Nazareth Hicksville the middle of nowhere I mean I thought the prophet said he'd come from Bethlehem Nazareth? Come on. Well, Philip wouldn't give in. 
He says, why don't you come with me and see for yourself? Then you'll change your tune. Then you'll get what I'm saying. This Jesus is the real thing. Well, that brings us to the fourth testimony of Nathanael in verses 47 to 49. It says, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. So taking up Andrew on his offer, Nathanael, also known as Bartholomew in the synoptics, he came to see Jesus, and as he approached, Jesus made this interesting statement. Now, what's that all about? Well, you remember that Israel was the name God gave, the new name God gave Jacob in Genesis 32, which is why Jacob's descendants are known as Israelites. And Jacob, he was known for a number of things, but he was definitely known as being a deceitful man, right? He pulled one over on his brother a couple times, his father, his uncle, not the best reputation. But in contrast, Jesus could see that Nathanael was very different than his ancestor. He was a straightforward kind of guy who, who didn't play games, he didn't mess around, he just told it like it is, including what he first thought about Jesus, right? The Messiah from Nazareth, seriously? Now, I think we can learn something from that. It's an important principle here, this honest initial reaction to Jesus. You know, the scriptures have a lot to say about speaking truthfully, uh, commending honesty, and condemning hypocrisy, even when it means being real about our doubts, just like Nathaniel was here. And later we'll see Nicodemus was, and Thomas, and others. Jesus commended Nathaniel for, for being genuine and honest about his questions and his doubts. And I think we can learn from that that we too should not keep our questions and our doubts about Jesus to ourselves. But we should be able to humbly share them with others and more importantly, share them with Jesus. Because if we're honestly looking for answers about him, if we're honestly seeking the truth, he will lead us there. Just as he did with Nathaniel, if we're honest with him. And he did it with Nathaniel in a simple yet profound way in verse 48 to 49. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So with just, just one small expression of his omniscience, right? That Jesus knows everything. He, he knew, he saw uh, Nathanael sitting there. Jesus convinced Nathanael he was none other than the son of God and king of Israel. Now, how is that possible unless Jesus truly is God? What else could explain it? You know, this thoughtful, critical thinker like Nathanael, convinced of Jesus' divinity just like that. Just one brief encounter, few words from his mouth, you know, a peek into Jesus' person and power, and, and Nathanael all of a sudden is testifying, you're the promised Davidic king. More than that, you're the son of God. There's got to be something extraordinary about this Jesus for such a change. A clear beholding of Jesus' divine nature that led to a believing in Jesus' name. So quickly, 
which again is the stated purpose of John's gospel. That we would meet Jesus. That we would, as we go through John, we'd hear Jesus' words. We'd see what Jesus was doing, his works. And then we ourselves would also come to testify that yes, this is the Son of God. John 20, 31, these things I have written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Years ago, a Brahmin scholar was disturbed by the progress of Christianity in his area of India, and so he decided to combat it by preparing a pamphlet that would show the failings of Jesus. And so he purchased a New Testament and began carefully studying the life of Christ, looking for weaknesses and inconsistencies. But after 11 years of study, he found none. And he became more and more convinced that the one he was seeking to discredit was, in fact, divine. Just like John, just like Andrew, just like Philip, just like Nathaniel and many, many more. Those who knew Jesus in the flesh testify unanimously that he is none other than God in the flesh. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Son of God, the Messiah, him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, the King of Israel and the Son of Man we finally see in Jesus' testimony of himself in verses 50 to 51. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So just as Jacob saw the angels of God ascending and descending, you'll remember on that ladder in in Genesis 28, representing the link between heaven and earth. Well, Nathanael had now met the living link between heaven and earth, the Son of Man, which was Jesus' favorite title for himself. It emphasized his humanity, that by becoming a man, he has solidarity with us and can fully sympathize with us and our humanity, which is such an encouraging thought, isn't it? Yes, he is the infinite, eternal, almighty, all-knowing, holy, sovereign, glorious God of all, far above us. And yet he's also Emmanuel, God with us, the Son of God and the Son of Man, who is one of us and can therefore sympathize with our weaknesses in every respect, just like we read in Hebrews 4, 15. That's so encouraging. Friend, are you discouraged today? Jesus understands. Are you drained? Jesus got tired. He experienced weakness too. Are you tempted to doubt and despair? Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He knows what you're going through. He understands your struggle. He understands what it means to be human. And he can therefore relate to you. Because again, he's not just the son of God. He is the son of man. But there's even more to it than that. 
See, when Jesus referred to himself this way, he surely had Daniel 7, 13 to 14 also in mind, which provides an even greater comfort to those who know Jesus and who testify that he is the son of God and son of man. There we read this prophecy. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. What a way. What a way for this chapter to end with this image of Jesus as the everlasting King of kings and Lord of lords, the Son of Man, who will one day come in the clouds and reign and rule forever on his kingdom on earth. Nothing like the fallible kings and, and uh, faltering kingdoms of this world that you know never measure up, but an infallible king reigning over an infinite kingdom that will exceed all expectations. And if we are citizens of that kingdom, if we believe in Jesus' name, if we testify with these others that he is God in the flesh, we will be there too. And we will see for ourselves what Jesus promised Nathaniel. Heaven opened up and all of the angelic host magnifying the Son of Man forever. As we proclaim, like the hymn goes, with, with joy and humble adoration, testify. My God, Jesus, you are my God. How great thou art. So how about you? Who do you say Jesus is? What is your testimony of him today? And what will it be on that great day? I pray that you and I and all of us will testify with these men that he is God in the flesh. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the Son of God and Son of Man. King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we thank you again for who you are and we're thankful for the truth of your word that shows us, especially in the gospel of John, that we can have confidence that you are, in fact, the Son of God, the Son of Man, our Savior, our King. I pray now that for all of us listening to this sermon and considering this text would be able to testify with those who knew you in the flesh that you are God in the flesh. And through that, through our faith in you, we would have great hope and assurance for the future of your coming kingdom. We pray this in your name. Amen.